Hi, this is Gary Meese, back with episode 30 of The Case Against, in which we're continuing to look into the case of the West Memphis Three, namely Damien Eccles, Jesse Miskelly Jr., and Jason Baldwin, who were convicted in 1994 of the May 5, 1993 murders of three eight-year-old boys. Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore in a wooded area known as Robin Hood Hills in West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, there's a lot of controversy about this case. A lot of it, frankly, is the result of film propaganda rather than the actual facts of the case. It's pretty clear if you simply looking at the facts that uh, the West Memphis Three were properly charged and properly convicted of the killings. They served 18 years. They were released in August of 2011 on an Alford plea in which they pled guilty, which is a guilty plea, which allows them to continue to assert their innocence, but they are nonetheless legally guilty. and. From our standpoint, what is more important, factually guilty, and deserve actually none of the sympathy and support they've received from thousands of supporters over the years. To put it briefly, these were three teenagers who lived in trailer parks in West Memphis and just outside Marion, Arkansas, which are two adjacent cities in Crittenden County, Arkansas, across the river from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, they brutally bound, tortured, beat, sexually assaulted these three little boys for no other reason. The most obvious simple reason is that, that for the thrill of it, though there are enough occult undertones and overtones in the case to suggest that at least one of the three, Damian Eccles, had uh, other ideas in mind about what the meaning of the killing wa killings were and, and that uh, he was uh, obsessed with the accumulation of power through magical means, which is something he is, he's still obsessed with. He, uh, he's the only professional ceremonial magician in the country that I'm aware of, both I'm sure there some others exist, and he exists solely on the basis of his own uh, ill-gotten celebrity and his obsession with the occult to this day. Um, we're going to look today further into the Hutchison family, we're not related to Damien Eccles was originally named Michael Wayne Hutchison and changed his name uh, partially as a result of being adopted by stepfather Andy Jack Eccles. He changed his name last name to Eccles, but he also changed his first name from Michael to Damien, uh, supposedly because he, his reasoning is that he was. Uh, an admirer of a saint who uh, had ministered to lepers in Hawaii 
there's, from my understanding of this, there's every reason to think his knowledge of this came about as a result of reading The Exorcist, which was a copy of, uh, there was a copy of that book in the, uh, in his home that was con when they confiscated the evidence. Very popular book. It's, it's not meaningful that, that um, alone that just because somebody has a copy of The Exorcist or for that matter Stephen King novels in their home that it doesn't really mean anything other than they somebody there likes those kind of stories. We know Eccles had a fascination with horror. It's almost certain that he must have read the book. Uh, the priest in the book is also named Damien and uh, took his name from the, the same uh, priest that ministered to lepers. Um, to make it extra special from Damien's standpoint, Damien was also the name of the son of Satan, which is how he sometimes referred to himself to his high school contemporaries when he was still going to high school. Uh, he was a dropout, as, as was Jesse Miskelly Jr. Uh, he sometimes referred to himself as a Satanist or the son of Satan, and the name of the malicious little child in uh, the omen was Damien. I'm going to be reading from a long chapter, and I read the first part, in my last episode uh, concerning, this is about the Hutchinson family, Aaron and Vicki Hutchinson, who have no relation that I'm aware of, and their name is spelled somewhat slightly differently to the, Hutch, the Michael uh, Hutchinson family. Uh, we talked last time about how Aaron... Her son Aaron knew the, three, the, the boys. He was playmates with uh, Christopher and Michael in particular. He seems to, he certainly knew Stevie Branch. Uh, not as much evidence he actually spent that much time with him. Um, and he, he described having gone to the woods where the boys were found on several occasions and gave very wild descriptions of what transpired there and what he saw and his supposed involvement. Uh, ultimately, his, all his interviews yielded very little for the police in terms of his own knowledge. Uh, and in 2004, the Arkansas Times, he, to, uh, he told them that uh, he uh, really wasn't sure exactly what happened. He uh, wasn't sure if he saw the murders or not, or if he just imagined he'd seen the murders. Uh, interestingly, at the time, at the time in, of the story in Arkansas Times in 2004, he was convinced that the boys had been killed by Mark by John Mark Byers, who was the adoptive father of Christopher Byers. And Mark Byers was the favorite alternative suspect in the case up until 2007-2008 uh, when uh, 
a hair was discovered that may that was found on one of the bodies and there were other hairs that were found at the crime scene that aren't really haven't really been conclusively linked to anybody including the West Memphis 3 I'll add but they haven't been linked to anybody uh, arguably this hair because it's simply microchondrial DNA is not is certainly not conclusively linked to Terry Hobbs, who was the stepfather of Stevie Branch. Uh, there are all sorts of good reasons why, if it is his hair, that it could have ended up at the crime scene since all three boys were in the Hobbs home that very afternoon. Uh, we also don't know that it's actually because of the nature of mitochondrial DNA. Uh, which is makes it possible that any one of millions of people in the country, it could be their hair instead of Mr. Hobbs. Uh, it, it can't be conclusively linked to him in any case, but it's certainly its presence is certainly easily described by a secondary possible secondary transfer if indeed it's from him. We don't really know. He, he mean it could have come from a teacher at school or one of his one of the classmates. They encountered. They were around many people that day. Uh, another other children they were playing with. There's just simply no way of knowing who whose hair that actually is. But if we want to say it's from Terry Hobbs, and it, it's that's a, that's pretty likely. I would say uh, secondary transfer is a plausible and a reasonable explanation. And it certainly is a very thin thread indeed, pun intended, to link Terry Hobbs to the killing since there's no other real evidence linking him at all. And there's quite a bit of evidence, witness statements and so forth, and, and just the simple circumstances which would have made him very difficult for him to, navig to navigate uh, all that would have been required for him to show up, kill the boys, get cleaned up, and present uh, the face that he presented to people at, at, as late as 6.30, 7 o'clock, uh, as early as, as late as, six, well, you know, he was, he was with David Jacoby roughly from quite a bit between 5.30 and 8 o'clock that night. He was seen at home by a police officer at 8.30. He was seen by uh, Mark Byers and uh, Dana Moore, the, the mother of Michael Moore, around 8 o'clock that evening. So the t amount of time he would have had available to commit the crimes, the just sheer logistics involved is daunting indeed. And there's no reasonable explanation as to motive. There's no indication that Terry Hobbs had any reason to kill uh, anybody. The idea that he would be so angry that he would kill one of the boys just because they were out in the woods instead of, you know, Stevie was supposed to be home. 
and he was late, and I'm sure he would have gotten in trouble for, for not showing up when he was supposed to show up at home. He was supposed to be home before five, and he, we know that he was out going into the woods at 6.30 or so that evening based on other witness statements. So he was clearly out of bounds as far as what he was doing that afternoon. Um, no doubt would have gotten in trouble, but there's no reason to think that that would have been grounds for killing him and his friends. Um, and there's been other rather fabulous scenarios, which I'll get into later in this podcast, not today, but in the future, fabulous scenarios about what was actually going on there. Uh, mostly a description from two uh, convicted rapists, career criminals in the Arkansas uh, prison system who made various wild claims about Jacoby and uh, Terry Hobbs. Buddy, Buddy Lucas. and uh, L.G. Hollingsworth, Jr. That's, you know, that's, that's a fabulous scenario. And I say fabulous not in the terms of great, but as it's, it's a fable, and it's a bizarre fable that has no basis in fact. And honestly, that's the last scenario that I, I heard described uh, by the by Mark Byers, and he he was convinced back in 2013 that 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 was the truth about what went on with this. At least that's what he said. And uh, the mother of uh, Pam Hobbs, Pam Hobbs Hicks, 2013, her attorneys put this out. I don't know that she ever actually believed any of it. Uh, she was. She's been much more unclear about what she actually thinks went on, uh, though she was unequivocal saying she didn't think the West Memphis Three did it, but as far as who actually would have killed the three boys in lieu of the three that were convicted, she's been much less clear and pretty much all over the place when, she, when she's actually come out and said anything. And, she, and neither Hobbs, uh, not Hobbs, but, uh, well, Pam Hobbs, Hicks, She's gone back to her last name, and uh, Mark Byers have been pretty quiet publicly, at least. Maybe they're commenting somewhere on Facebook or on a board someplace, but in, pub, in a real widespread public media interview, it's been quite a while since they've had anything to say about the case. Um, I want to say briefly that uh, before I get into this, that I watched um, a documentary series and a, doc, uh, and a documentary film, both on Netflix in the last week or so. Uh, one, The Confession Killers, ki- The Confession Killer about Henry Lee Lucas, and Dream Killer about Ryan Ferguson. I don't know anybody <laughs> that ever believed that outside the group of investigating officers that ever found Henry Lee Lucas to be all that credible. I I can remember a a book 
that he had some involvement in appearing in the newspaper office around 1982, 1983, uh, which he, you know, claimed some sort of satanic cult was involved. He and Otis Toole, or Otis Toole, however Mr. Toole pronounced his name, were involved in this cult that was going around sacrificing. And it seemed very far out and really rather silly at the time and nobody took it seriously then. That was over 30 years ago. But, you know, I will say it's a fascinating case. It's a fascinating case. Uh, what you do get from that series is how an unreliable witness, a brain-damaged man, and I'm not making big excuses for a guy who was a child molester and a killer. I mean, he was a horrible person. At times, I, f I felt strange feeling a little sympathy for the dilemma he'd put himself in, uh, in in Texas, where he seemed to be, he's about to be executed for a crime he maybe he didn't actually commit. At the same time, <laughs> he brought all this upon himself uh, just because he was trying to work the system, and the system played along with him because the system had its own goals in mind, which is closing out all these cases all around the country. It just got to be ludicrous. And uh, that should have been clear to people who were close. And it's a good example of how people can delude themselves about all sorts of matters and things they, you know, they're con speaking of confirmation bias, you're telling me what I want to hear, so I believe it, even though the evidence may suggest otherwise. Uh, Dream Killer is a, a little more problematic. Uh, you know, as soon as Catherine Zellner shows up in it, I sort of recoil because of the ridiculous depth she's gone to with the Stephen Avery case. I will say Ryan, the Ryan Ferguson case, technically Ryan Ferguson has not been, his, his, his conviction's been vacated. He's not, it's not, no longer on the books. He's not convicted of that crime. And uh, the authorities have basically decided to go ahead and just settle out on the case though that I'm not sure exactly where all that's gone as far as the settlement, but basically the authorities decided not to fight it just because they were, they were egregiously wrong in a technical sense in terms of withholding evidence from the defense. Brady violations. Brady violations might make you technically innocent as far as the court's concerned. As far as I'm concerned, you can still be factually guilty, and I think most people would understand that concept. You've got legal innocence and you've got real innocence. Did Ryan Ferguson kill the sports editor one late night and some sort of with his friend Chuck Harrison and some sort of uh, drunken uh, impulse on some sort of drunken impulse? I don't know. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that the evidence that was presented against him looked in its totality in the full context of what we know now was sufficient. I wouldn't say it was sufficient for reasonable, uh, to pass the bar of reasonable doubt. 
but he's he hasn't been exonerated and uh, there's been no other good explanation for what happened that evening. Uh, Chuck Aronson very well could remembering bits and pieces of a flat, uh, from a blackout, alcoholic blackout uh, that actually occurred. Uh, if he says he doesn't really remember what happened, it's it's perfectly explainable by the fact that his his memory function wasn't working very well because he was so intoxicated. However, even in the even in that kind of state of mind, some memories can persist and stick very unclearly. Erickson is extremely, you know, he's another extremely unreliable witness. So, uh, and he's created his problems for himself, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so, there we go. We've got, and we, and then, then there was a system that really did want to get this crime solved. And here was here was somebody who was confessing or seeming to confess about something he may or may have not done, maybe in a dream. It, it's, uh, and then there was you know a couple of eyewitnesses that initially seemed to give some sort of credence to uh, Ryan Ferguson having been there, and it turns out that they were really very poor witnesses to this. And I will say, and I will stipulate that eyewitness, eyewitness uh, evidence is not the best. There are more cases from true, the, the relatively few, you wouldn't know it from what goes on in the media, but the relatively, of the relatively few, considering the totality of can, total numbers of people in the country who are in prison for crimes they did commit, there are some wrongful convictions, no doubt about it, and many of those are attributable, attributable to uh, mistaken eyewitnesses. In the West Memphis Three case, if the only evidence was the evidence of the Hollingsworth family, in which three family members who knew Damien Eccles said they saw him at the scene, and they also said they saw Jason Baldwin at the scene, and there, that's a lot of there's a lot of controversy about that. Uh, I can't explain that, and I'm not going to I'm not going to try. However, I don't have another I don't have a good explanation as to why why Jason Baldwin could be because he seemingly he was at, at home at that time but that night he got home around nine o'clock or so uh, that evening despite what he he the impression he likes to give in interviews he refuses to be pinned down about his his uh, alibi but he seems to have gotten home around nine or 9 30 or so. Uh, when his mother called from work, uh, according to Dink Dent, who I think is a, was a pretty reliable witness because he just simply said what he saw and it didn't really make Jason look really good and it didn't make Jason look really bad on the face of it, but it offered Jason no alibi as far as being at home until pretty late in the evening with plenty of time to commit the murders, despite whatever uh, Baldwin states to the public. Um, it raises the question, who was the other person with Damien Eccles by the side of the road? Some people speculate 
Dominique Tier was actually there. Dominique has a real alibi, but a weak one. Basically, she has her alibi confirmed by her mother that she was asleep at that 9.30 or so on that Wednesday night. Uh, it's not an unreasonable alibi. It's certainly better and more consistent than anything we've gotten from any of the three killers who have been all over the place with all this. But uh, it's not a really, really strong alibi. Is it possible that she and her mother came up with a consistent alibi and she was actually by, out by the side of the road that evening with Damien? Maybe just picking him up or bringing him a, a new set of clothes? Who knows? I mean, why, if she was there, who knows why she was there? Uh, but it doesn't suggest she actually was involved directly in the murders and very well may not have been aware of what was going on till well after the fact. When I say well after the fact, she may, she still may know have, she still may have no sure knowledge of what actually went on that evening. Damien didn't have a great deal of strong feeling for Domini. He regarded the baby that she was pregnant, 16 year old pregnant, he regarded the approach of the child as a means to increase his social security disability income. And uh, so he wasn't as interested in sacrificing the child as he, he apparently had talked about, whether he would actually do it or not, something else. But it talked about with previous, concerning uh, his previous girlfriend, uh, Deanna Holcomb. So who knows? And but but you know you have three eyewitnesses who all know Damien Eccles, and they all place him by the side of the road that evening. Uh, there are also a number of other events that tie make it that evening rather than some other evening, uh, including the interaction with Dixie Dixie Hufford at the laundromat when they they were going to pick her up. The Hollingsworth family were uh, L.G. Hollingsworth had been in just prior, uh, and there's some, he was, he, he was very inconsistent about his story, but he was consistent that he dropped by to get Dominique's number, which raises the question, why did he need Dominique's telephone number? Uh, he'd just seen her that day, he would see her the next day. It's after nine o'clock at night, uh, he had to go to work the next day. Maybe he just wanted to call and chat. Who knows? And uh, it would have been nice in all the various interviews with L.G. Hollingsworth if they could have pinned him down about why he needed uh, <coughs> excuse me, that number that evening. But as in <laughs> many other instances, and I'm not particularly faulting the police department for not getting the answers I would like to have seen, I do wish they'd asked some better questions from some people. And in fact, in some cases, I wish they'd just simply asked some questions from some people, such as the parents, all the parents of the, the dead children had done full-fledged interviews and recorded those, so we would have a better idea of what the circumstances were in the disappearance and death of 
Michael, Christopher, and Stevie, and I am not suggesting that any of the parents were involved in the deaths. Anyway, uh, Vicki Hutchinson, and I'm sure I'm going to get into this as I read, read from Blood on Black, one of my books available on Amazon, along with Where the Monsters Go, and a revised, condensed, and more affordable version called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. Vicki uh, Hutchinson and Aaron Hutchinson played a vital role in the solution to this case, but it did not come from their eyewitness testimony. It came from their association. It didn't even come from their association with the three dead boys and with the families. They knew the, the families of the boy. Uh, they knew particularly the Hobbs family. Uh, not the Hobbs family, uh, the Byers family. Uh, but their, the vital link came through their association with Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., uh, with Vicki Hutchinson had become good friends with in a very short period of time, she supplied liquor to him on a regular basis. He was still 17. Um, in fact, she confirmed that she supplied, uh, when Jesse Miskelly Jr. described getting drunk and breaking a, uh, a bot to prosecutors after his conviction, his conf in his confession, post-conviction confessions, of which there were a number, he described breaking a bottle of Evan Williams whiskey on an overpass at the interstates in West Memphis, Arkansas. There are two interstates that run through the town. Uh, they found a shard of the bottle, and Vicki Hutchinson confirmed having bought that brand of whiskey for Jesse Muskelly on that evening. So that was useful, but it didn't show up in trial. Um, and what she says in trial, as we're going to see, see, is just it made for good press, and uh, it was sensationalistic. But as far as being substantive, it just wasn't. There was nothing there. All it did was confirm, if it confirmed anything, that Eccles and Miss Kelly were involved in some occult doings. But Miss Kelly had already said that he was. And Eccles positively bragged about the fact. So anyway, we're going we're gonna to get into a portion of chapter from Blood on Black. As I've already said, Aaron didn't testify at trial, but... In 2004, he told the Arkansas Times he was no longer sure if he saw the murders or if he imagined he had seen the murders. Uh, and he said that his statements had been complete fabrications, that the police had tricked him into saying things that weren't true. And uh, his mother made similar claims around the same time in 2004. She chose not to... Uh, actually take the stand and testify that she had lied on the stand or exaggerated or fabricated that she'd done all those things on the stand. Instead, she sent 
because it would have opened her up to perjury charges, but she simply uh, decided to go to the press with this, uh, which means that, you know, she was serious, but she wasn't that serious. She wanted to set things right, but not that right. And she also didn't want to face the grilling she would have gotten from prosecutors if she'd come up and made um, the claims that she made on the stand. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say they probably would have torn her apart, even though it may well have turned out that her stories were fabrications uh, and that might have been verified. She would have come away from the testimony looking very, very bad indeed, if not charged criminally. But, you know, she... She gave a blanket disclaimer about, oh, it was all lies. Well, it wasn't all lies. There's got to be some truth in all that. So by not being clear about what the specifics were, about what she actually made up, what was real, we can only go on what she said to the press. And it's a very friendly press, the Arkansas Times Press, the Marl, Marl Everett Press. Uh, which is really nothing more than a cover for uh, advocacy by this so-called impartial journalist. I, I don't pretend to be particularly impartial in my coverage, but at least I'm sort of explicit about it. I, I do think they're guilty, but I'm not basing that on uh, presupposition. I'm basing it on the evidence that I've seen. Uh, it'd be kind of like asking uh, somebody who was writing about the Bundy murders to set aside their conviction, their, their belief that Bundy was guilty of the crimes and write something that was totally uh, impartial. Not just impartial, but you know, distance, distancing, never actually getting on the side of being guilty. What I was going to say about the, the, the documentary, the do Netflix documentary and the Netflix series is what you'll find if you look at not just what's there as far as the content, but if you look behind that and who's, produce, who's producing these shows, who's make, making these shows happen. And in one case, you find uh, filmmaker Andrew Jenks is, and th by the way, these are both two very talented men. Uh, Andrew Jinks did the um, make sure I get this right. Andrew Jinks did the Ryan Ferguson story. And you look at Andrew Jinks' background, and it's all uh, you know, academia. Liber, liberal institutions, T Tisch uh, Academy of the, uh, School of the Arts in New York, where you know it, it's it's like this little Hollywood Broadway nexus. And as we all know, there's a consensus there that police are bad, uh, accused criminals are good, and uh, we'll do anything we can to. Uh, raise questions about the criminal justice system, and that's exactly what that particular case does. Uh, confession killer, uh, I, I hope I don't get these backwards. Robert Kenner, 
Robert Kenner, as a is, is you know he was a graduate of the Salisbury School, which is a noted, very very long time, extremely progressive, extremely liberal uh, hotbed of academia, lower level, but in in the Northeast. Uh, couldn't find out so much about some of his other education. It seems to have been scrubbed from the internet if it ever existed. But he, uh, you know, he his projects have all been very much uh, from a progressive leftist uh, viewpoint, standpoint. Um, and I think it's safe to say that he operates from the same sort of nexus that people like Bruce Sinoski and what's his name? Man, I'm, I'm losing it. Uh, operate from. Anyway, let me get why am I faulty why am I rapidly aging brain and my faulty memory uh, I'll I'll fall back on the written text here after I've already talked for quite some time and not even gotten into Vicki Hutchison but here we go uh, Vicki Hutchison did testify in the Jesse Miskelly trial but not the Uckles Baldwin trial and she gave a fairly straightforward description of how Eccles with Miskelly took her to a witch's meeting. <coughs> she testified she and Eccles left, but Miskelly stayed. Uh, jurors did not hear salacious details about incipient orgies and other bizarre goings-ons, uh, which she described to police earlier. And in, in the 2004 to the story in the Arkansas Times, she said about the trip to the Esbot, every word of it was a lie. Now, lie or not, her testimony played no role in the Eccles Baldwin's case and was not crucial to the conviction of Miss Kelly. Jurors there were largely convinced by the confession from Miss Kelly, particularly where Miss Kelly described chasing down Michael Moore. Some jurors told reporters that the occult trappings were not particularly convincing and were ultimately irrelevant to reaching a guilty verdict. Which just a, uh, another gives another lie to the whole idea that this case is an example of satanic panic in action. It simply isn't. There was no satanic panic going on until a kid confessed who confessed to the killings in the same confession described satanic rituals, and then the, guy, the other guy they arrested bragged about being a witch. Though she later claimed coercion, police interviews indicated Vicki Hutchinson was eager to play a starring role in the investigation, perhaps with hopes of collecting a reward. As Assistant Police Chief Donald Bray, who was in Marion, described her role in his notes on the June 2nd, 1993 interview. This was the day before Jesse Muskelly was arrested. She said she was trying to play detectives because she had heard Damien was involved in devil worship and thought it might be connected to the murders. In 2004, Vicki Hutchison told the Arkansas Times that she not only testified as instructed by the West Memphis PD, 
where have we heard this before, under a threat that she would have her child taken from her and that she would be implicated in the murders. There was no evidence of a police threat. And she tells this to the Arkansas Times. She doesn't get on the witness stand and make this statement where it could be challenged. It just floats out there so it's true, even though it's coming from a, an admitted liar. Uh, Hutchison testified in 1994 that, quote, West Memphis knew nothing, her own words, about her plan to quote, play detective, unquote, when she set up meetings with Eccles. I decided that on my own. Those boys I loved and I wanted their killers caught asked for the $30,000 reward, quote, it had nothing to do with it. She did receive help from law enforcement in checking out occult books from the library in an effort to impress Eccles, which didn't really work, and in setting up a recording device under her bed. Police said the resulting tapes were of such poor quality as to be of no use. She claimed to hear high-quality recordings. Uh, she testified she'd never met Assistant Prosecutor John Fogelman until a month or two before trial. Her statements were filled with largely unsolicited, unschooled details about interactions with Miss Kelly and Eccles. Now, Aaron considered Michael and Christopher his best friends, dating from when he lived on East Barton in West Memphis. According to his mother, these were his own, those were his only friends. In a May 28, 1993 interview with uh, Detectives Brian Ridge and James Sudsbury, she described picking up Aaron after school on May 5th, which is the date that the killings occurred. I was waiting in where the teachers park on the side of Weaver Elementary and watching for Aaron. It was approximately 15 after 3, and Michael Moore came to one side of my truck and Christopher Byers to the other, and Aaron, you know, close to them, and they were telling me, Miss Vicky, there's a Cub Scout thing tonight, and Aaron needs to go, and Michael's father is their troop leader, and there wasn't, a, by the way, there wasn't a club, Cub Scout meeting that night. Uh, Michael was really incessant upon Aaron going, and uh, they just keep saying there's a Cub Scout thing. Miss Vicky, he has to go, he has to go. And I said, no, this is Wednesday night. Cub Scouts are tomorrow, Thursday night, and they just kept on. Finally, you know, they got it through. He wasn't going to go so because I just thought they were wanted to go and play. And um, he said, well, then can Aaron just come to my house and you can pick him up in two hours? which I had done frequently, so he had assumed I would do it then, and I just said no because I had some errand to ran. Aaron did not go. I went home. Now, she said she went to the grocery about 5.30 and stopped somewhere to eat with Aaron in tow. Quote, he was never alone. They got home, quote, probably about 8 or so. It's a lot of errands. <laughs> Among her errands, she would tell prosecutors was going to the liquor store to purchase two bottles of Evan Williams whiskey for Jesse Miskelly Jr. and Dennis Carter, who were both underage. His mother, that's in, she told this later in, in uh, February of 1994 after, uh, may have been March, may have been early March, but um, after 
Miskelly uh, was convicted, he was told this story to prosecutors about the whiskey, and she confirmed those details. Uh, Aaron's mother on May 28th contradicted any stories Aaron told about his trip to Robin Hood that afternoon, and he told a bunch of stories about that. She gave a different version of Aaron's activities for May 5th on June 2nd, abruptly becoming unable to account for him that afternoon while he was nominally under the care of a babysitter. The June 2nd version gave Aaron time to go to the woods. On May 6th, after discovering his friends were missing, she claimed, she pulled Aaron out of school and took him over to the Moore house. She said, Todd, that'd be Todd Moore, Michael Moore's father, Todd asked Aaron if he might know did Chris or Michael say anything to him to the effect where they might be, which is very reasonable and uh, very reasonable question to ask. And uh, he said, no, there, you know, you can tell when your child is lying and it was like he knew something was up. And uh, he said, after we had left the Moors coming out of their house, he told me, Mama, let's go to the clubhouse. We need to go to the clubhouse. Well, it's obvious there that Aaron had a pretty good idea where the boys might have gone that afternoon. He wasn't willing to tell was willing to lie about it to Todd Moore, even though the boys were missing, and he skirts around the issue with his mother by saying, let's go to the clubhouse. Uh, Vicky had been to the site before, the clubhouse being boards nailed up in a tree. She was not able to get there because the entry at the dead end of Macaulay, uh, which is the street leading up to the pipe that crosses 10 mile bayou that allows people to cross from uh, the neighborhood where the boys lived into these this you know fairly small woods four or five acres adjacent to the service road next to the interstate in west memphis uh, the question persists as to whether there was a clubhouse jesse miskelly in one confession mentioned the clubhouse and then corrected himself, saying he had been thinking of a clubhouse near Highland Trailer Park, which is where he lived. Aaron gave a little description of the clubhouse, which he repeatedly mentioned. It may have been formed largely by imagination, whether by the boys as a group or just Aaron. Boys commonly stake out territory as clubhouses, treehouses, and forts in play, or at least they used to. I know we did. Old boards at the scene could have been part of the clubhouse. Uh, Vicky goes on. Aaron told me that um, he and Michael and Chris visit their clubhouse every day, and they rode their bikes, and they were spying on five men, and I asked him who they were, and he said, I don't know, Mom, who they were. I just... <coughs> Excuse me. I just, you know, we just spying on them. I said, why would you be spying on five men, you know? He said, well, they were there every day, so we would watch them. I said, what made you interested in them? He said, because they paint themselves and they have dragon shirts and they talk in Spanish. And I say, Aaron, they talk in Spanish. How do you know that Spanish? I mean, you don't know Spanish. 
he said, well, I don't understand what they're saying, and they sing bad things. And I said, like, what kind of bad things? My father being a preacher, Aaron has been in my church quite often, you know, and he said they sing about the devil, and they know we love the devil. And um, he said, I think that they love the devil more than God, Mom. I told him, why didn't y'all leave? Why didn't you come home? Were you scared? They said, no, we hid. They couldn't see us. I said, so y'all went there every day. He said, we went there every day, but wouldn't go on Friday. And I told him, why, how do you know Friday? He said, well, that's because the day, that's the day before the weekend, you know, the last day of school. And I know it was Friday and they didn't come. And uh, I said, okay, what happened? What did they do? He said, well, when they first saw them, you know, they sat around a fire in a circle by this tree. They did this like several times. And then they'd sing a song and they'd dance around the tree. Then he told me these five men took their clothes off. And I said, Aaron, you know that they took their clothes off. Why didn't you leave? And he said, because we were scared. And they were scared, I guess, of getting caught then. And uh, he said, Michael kept telling him that it was an Indian thing they were supposed to do. And Chris said, no, they're getting ready to have sex. And I told Aaron, Aaron doesn't know about sex. And we talked about it in all the books you've seen. Um, he said that they had their Peters in each other's butts and said they watched. And I just got into detail with him with the sex thing. I know he's telling the truth. Vicky added, Jesse Miskelly had told Aaron that um, the boy's killer had been found and uh, Aaron was ecstatic over it. He was very happy. He later found out that wasn't true. What's really weird is he said, you know, exactly that it was a Satanistic group, namely the dragons. Okay, that's what Vicky told, Vicky description of what Aaron told her about all this. She also related that she had heard third hand that Robert Burks, B-U-R-K-S, which would actually have been a, a teenager there named Robert Birch, who had been look, who was looked into as a potential person of interest, had told a teen girl that he killed the boys and would kill the girl if she talked. Birch, whose name came up repeatedly in the vet investigation, talked to police and offered no alibi, but there was nothing but rumor and an acquaintance with Baldwin and Miss Kelly linking him to the case. Uh, Vicky also named some of Damien's friends and the Satan worshipers. Sean, Spiderweb, Burks, Snake, Jason, some little boy named Jason. I don't know his name. He lives in Lakeshore. It's obviously J Jason Baldwin and Miss Kelly. Uh, Vicky said, there's a guy he calls Lucy, but everyone else calls Lucifer. He's an older guy. He's he's probably closer to my age, 30. I haven't really been up close with him, you know. I've seen him in a car. Um, he's got brownish hair, and he does have a big nose. I believe he had glasses on. She said Lucifer drove an old, beaten-up car, quote, like an Impala or Caprice. It looked like a primer, primer color, you know, like they were going to paint it. <clears throat> The mysterious Lucifer popped up again and again in descriptions of the cult in Lakeshore Trailer Park, which is where 
Jason Baldwin and Damien Dominique Tier lived and where Damien spent a great deal of his time. Uh, now Lucifer was described differently from different people, but he was consistently described as older than the teens. In her May 28th interview, Vicki Hudson described how shortly after the killings, she sent Aaron out of town for eight days to stay with her sister, meanwhile talking to people about the case, including a little Jesse, Jesse Miskelly, lives down the street from me, and you know that I was really close to him because he was always around. He doesn't go to school or anything. He like help you mow the lawn and stuff, and I've gotten really close with him. He made mention after this came out that um, he had seen Chris Byers over by the beacon that morning on the morning that, you know, they were found and that Chris was in a pink shirt and even picked him out in the paper to me. That was odd for him to say something like that. So I just keep talking with Jesse because uh, Jesse's, I mean, not a bad kid, you know. You don't know who people know. So I just keep talking to Jesse about stuff and Jesse told me about a friend of his named Damien and this friend drank blood and stuff. He just keep going on and on about how weird he was and stuff. So by the way, you know, the stuff that we knew, the public knew, that was coming out in the paper and stuff. I just thought how they were killed was odd because, you know, maybe it was like a devil worshiping thing or, you know, something just hit me that it might be it. And I thought that this kid doing this, you know, maybe he knew something or Maybe Jesse knew something, so um, Jesse had told me that Damien hang out at Lakeshore, and so I went out of my way, you know, to try to go around Lakeshore and, you know, people around there, and I told Jesse I had seen Damien, and I asked him, how did I know it was Damien? Now, that, that's the world's, one of the world's longest sentences there. Um, She talks about what the people knew that was coming out in the paper. There was not anything about satanic panic coming out in the paper. There was uh, a false report, or not a false report, a misleading report that had come out about the discovery of the boys, <coughs> which stated that they had all been mutilated. It's what based on police uh, state transmissions that were heard over police radio uh, the Friday after the murders. The, the murders were on a Wednesday. Now, she's telling all this to police before they ever get around to talking to Jesse Miskelly Jr. Miskelly was not on the police radar uh, up to this point. Uh, he had no discernible links to the crime up to this point. Uh, the, the strange thing is is that Miss Kelly kept talking about having seen the boys that day uh, in other descriptions. And, I mean, he the boys were in school. And they were not, there's no evidence they were up around an overpass and the various other, and other places that Miss Kelly described. And, uh, Christopher Byers did not have on a pink shirt that day. So these were odd, odd things for Miskella to be saying. Uh, I don't have a real explanation for why he would be saying this, but you can see this is a case where he talked. He talked to the wrong person, somebody who was not going to keep anything to herself. 
and she goes blabbing to police. He blabs, she blabs, and the next thing you know, Jesse Miskelly Jr. is blabbing in a confession. And of course, after he's convicted, he keeps on blabbing. Uh, Miskelly essentially convicted himself, and he gave he provided the the means by which Eccles and Baldwin were uh, charged. Up to that point, Eccles was a strong suspect, not based on black t-shirts, weird haircuts, or love of Metallica, but from other factors, including an eyewitness sighting, his own statements to police, uh, a confession, uh, an op- uh, report of a confession to a friend about the about the, the uh, being involved in the killing so he was a strong suspect by his own actions and by the eyewitness accounts prior to uh, the arrest but they didn't have enough to charge him until Jesse Miskelly Jr. confessed and the only reason he confessed is because he was taken to the police station to talk about what, how, what he knew about Damien Eccles they talked to plenty of other kids from the trailer parks and gotten various forms of information about Damien Eccles and other, and not just him, but other potential suspects. They were still looking at other potential suspects up until the day uh, that they were charged. And so Miskelly, if Miskelly had just stopped all this idle talk to Vicki Hutchison, she would not have passed it along to the police. The police may never have talked to Jesse Miskelly Jr., and he would never have gone. Maybe they would never have made an arrest in the case. It's not that unlikely. Except you have Jesse Miskelly Jr. involved. He was going to talk sooner or later. He was already talking. He was going to continue to talk. It would have gotten back to them sooner or later. Anyway, uh, back to Vicky's statement to police. And I said that there was a little boy, Adam, who's a friend of mine's little boy, and he had pointed him out to me, talking about Damien. And he said, well, you know, he's kind of weird. I said, no, I think he's hot. I really want to go out with him. Can you fix me up with him? And, you know, he was real surprised, but he said, yeah, if you want to go out with him, I'll fix him, you up with him, and he did. Uh, so Vicki Hutchison thought that maybe Jesse knew something based on strange things he had said, and she thought maybe he knew something based on the fact that Muskelly was fascinated with Eccles' weird practices, such as beliefs, such as drinking blood. So Jesse fixed up Vicki and Damien. It didn't take much persuasion. Uh, Muskelly drove the Hutchinson pickup over to Baldwin's home, told Eccles that he knew a woman who wanted to meet him, and Eccles hopped aboard. Eventually, Eccles would show up at her trailer about six times, apparently never spending much time, according to Hutchison. She told police that she was not attracted to Eccles and found him frightening. She said they never had sex, based on her retraction statements years later. Eccles actually only showed up just once for a very brief, awkward visit. Who knows? 
Hutchison told Brian Ridge, he came to my house the very first time I met him. We talked about him, lots of different stuff. He's not real, real talkative. You, you kind of have to pull things out of him, but he kept telling me about the boys' murders and how he had been, he said, questioned. He always said that I was accused for eight hours. I was accused of killing those three little boys, and I just acted like it was no big deal. And I said, well, you know, why would they pick you in West Memphis, you know? There are boo-coos of people. Why would they just pick you out? And he just looked at me, I mean, just really weird, and said, because I'm evil. He called me. Um, he told me that he would like to see me again and stuff like this. And I said, okay. So, you know, he just kept coming over, and he never really um, gave me times or when he, I'm coming, but he would just drop in. And in the meantime, communicating with Officer Bray, I'd gotten some satanic books and witch books and all this, and we were sitting on my couch, and I laid them out where he could see them right close to my table. He said, you know, he picked one up and asked me what I was doing. I got out a Cosmopolitan, and in the back there was a Wicca, they spell it W-I-C-K-A, thing that you write to, and you became, become a witch or go to witch school or something like that. <coughs> anyway, I told him not to worry. You know, this is what I'm wanting to be. And he just looked at me really weird and he said, you don't have to go like that. You don't have to go there to do that. No, it would all come in time is what he said. It'll happen in time. Excuse me a minute. The next day after he finds out that I'm wanting to go do this, he told me and asked me that I want to go to Esbot. I didn't know what Esbot was. I looked it up in the book and found out it was a meeting, and I thought immediately, yeah, this is where I want to go. I want to see what's going on. Then he took me, and he picked me up, and he took me in a red escort. He drove us to Turrell, which is a little town, uh, a sad, dilapidated little town uh, in North Crittenden County. And uh, she said Miss Kelly went along for the ride to Turrell, a small, poor community of about 800 residents, about 12 miles north of Marion. The Wapanaka National Wildlife Refuge, centered around Lake Wapanaka, is adjacent to the township. The Esbot location is sometimes referred to as Turl Twist or Twist, uh, with Twist being the name of a small farm-based community at the Crittenden Cross County line. <laughs> it's really just like a wide spot in the road. Um, Miskelly told officers on June 3rd that Damien drove a red car owned by Jack Eccles. Among the many criticisms about the red, the, about the Esbot story are that <coughs> Damien didn't drive and Damien didn't have access to a red car. It seems unlikely that Miskelly mentioned the red car just to corroborate Hutchison's story. And at this point, it's, I'm unable to determine what color car Jack Eccles had. But let's presume he had a car. 
And just because Damien said he didn't drive didn't mean he didn't drive. Hutchison described the trip. He um, took us to, I'm not really familiar. I'm from Springdale, so I'm not familiar with this area even, but Turl, I was really lost. I do know where kind of where he went, you know, we turned off and hit a dirt road and about by some kind of water and in woods and a field. And by the time we got in there, it was dark. Mm, it was quite a drive. And uh, we went out and got in, out of the car and it was just really dark, especially out, you know, in the woods. It was just dark and I was scared a little bit. In fact, we held hands just like you would hold my hand and keep trying to comfort me. He knew I was scared. He told me it would be okay, you know, not to be scared, don't worry, be, don't worry, and uh, Jesse went to the crowd, and then you could see there was a crowd of kids. There were about 10 in attendance, none over age 18, with faces painted black. What you could see of their bodies without their clothes, you know, was painted, their arms were painted, you know, they had on jeans. They stood around and it seemed like they were just talking and stuff and Damien and I stood away, back away from them. We never went to the crowd. Uh, a teen she knew, Sean Webb, the aforementioned spider Webb, stepped away to talk with him. When he got close enough to me, I could tell who he was. He talked with Damien, you know, just what's up, you know, just bull crap and then walked over and then these kids took their clothes off began touching each other and I knew what was going to happen. I looked at Damien and said I want to leave. He said okay, but Jesse Jesse stayed. After he brought me home, we went into my house and you know, just sat there and talked and stuff and he never made comment about it or anything. It was just like it never even happened. Which is the it was just like it never even happened, which is the title of this chapter and it aptly describes much of this. <laughs> he went, he left, and went home. She said this occurred on Wednesday, May 19th, which would have been two weeks after the killings. He called me on Thursday and told me about this girl being pregnant, and you know he's going to have to take care of her or make her think that he's the, you know, he's faithful to her. And so uh, the word has gotten out that I was seeing him because I'm a, you know, an older woman and everything. So he said, we're going to have to kind of cool it and keep it down. And so I kind of thought, well, God, I've ruined it. And, you know, she's ruined it for me and I'm not going to be able to see him anymore. I thought he'd just quit calling. But he called all the time wanting me, you know, wanting to know, you know, what men were at my house. And I do have a boyfriend that I see all the time. And uh, so, you know, is there, he, you know, is there quite often. My house was really quiet this last Wednesday. Nobody came over or anything. Jim, that's the boyfriend, came over after he got off work, and it was 1.30 when he got off, and we just sat and talked on the couch and watched a movie. It was about 3.30, and we heard this big, when I mean it sounded really horrible, it scared me to death. And uh, so Jim got up, he and I both got up and went to my door and we looked out front underneath on my window where you keep plants. I have like a really thick board that's been nailed up and has some bolts underneath it. And this thing was broke completely in half. 
No one was around. I asked Damien. He called me last night. I asked him, um, what did you do Wednesday night? Hung out. I said, you didn't come to my house, did you? He said, I know you were there with Jim. That's all that matters, and that's it. That was the end of it. Ridge asked, did he say he was jealous of that? Vicky replied, are you kidding? I mean, you could tell that he's mad. He was very calm, but aggravated is what I would call it. In a June 2nd interview, Hutchison repeated much of her story to Bray and said someone the night before had been looking into her windows. She left 15-year-old roommate Christy, Christy Anderson babysitting Aaron while she went to Kroger. When she returned about 11 p.m., a 15-year-old friend visiting the trailer said she had seen someone looking into the living room window. Aaron reported someone had been looking into his bedroom window and had pulled, a wire, pulled on a wire leading into the bedroom hard enough to pull a console, console from under the bed. Apparently, no one bothered to call police and no suspect was found. The incident was similar to incidents in which Eccles was seen stalking children and young girls. Uh, the night before he was arrested, which would have been June 2nd, uh, the, that would have been the night, Miss Kelly spent the night at the Hutchison trailer, reportedly sleeping on the couch because she was concerned about a prowler. Uh, apparently prompted by this incident with the console being pulled from under the bed, etc. Eccles stopped talking to Vicky after <coughs> May 28th, 1993, when the FBI supposedly came out and took photos of his trailer. She had planned a party for Saturday, May 29th, inviting Eccles, Miss Kelly, and Robert Birch. When nobody showed up, she phoned Eccles around 8 or 9. He told her he had something important to do. When she asked if she could come along, he said no. She tried to talk to him again on June 1st around 7.30 p.m. Eccles' sister Michelle told her Damien had gone to bed. Eccles noted, Vicky says she is scared now. Vicki Hutchison took a polygraph test on June 2nd. No deception was indicated when she said that she had not met Eccles prior to three weeks before, that she had not told Aaron what to tell police, that she had no knowledge of the murders, foreknowledge of the murders, and that no one told her they were involved in the killings. A decade after the trial on June 24, 2004, <coughs> excuse me, Hutchison gave a sworn statement to the Miskelly defense team in which she claimed that Don Bray and Jerry Driver, who was a ju juvenile officer, persuaded her that Eccles was guilty. She described her initial meeting with Eccles as a fiasco, describing him as a normal teen is far cry from what she described at the time. Vicky claimed the tapes of the, their conversations were, were of good quality, but worked against the case the police were hoping to build. She claimed Ridge suggested that if she could not deliver evidence against Eccles, 
she could be seen as the vital link between the killers and their victims, that she could be implicated in the homicide. Quote, and they also told me it would be a shame if I lost Aaron over this whole thing. Well, for the well-being of Aaron, it probably wouldn't be a shame, but I'll go on with this. She claimed Ridge, Ridge schooled her over 12 and a half hours on a made-up story about the Esbot trip. And then I just started making up stuff as I went because I didn't know what else to do, and I did. After the, the first meeting, she claimed she talked to Eccles just once when she called him and said he was under, he said he was under FBI surveillance. On the day of her court appearance, quote, I was kind of high. I couldn't even stand up. I even had somebody go get me some more pills. And supposedly she'd taken four Prozac, at least 13 Valium, and four pain pills prior to testifying. Uh, she'd been taking Prozac, Valium, and a sleeping medication, Trazodine, during May, all from the East Arkansas Mental Health Center, uh, as well as obtaining pain pills from Melissa Byers, who was Christopher Byers' mother, and downers from another friend. She was seeing a therapist and a psychiatrist. She said she was bipolar, had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and had post-traumatic stress syndrome. At the time of the trial, her part-time job as a bartender at the Ramada Inn, which is after she was let go for this uh, money problem at, at the gas station, allowed her to drink, quote, as much as I wanted. I should say that when I left, I felt pretty good every night. Uh, in 1994, after the trials were over, she told defense investigators that she drank a bottle of wild turkey whiskey prior to the trip to the Esbot and could not recall the circumstances or who accompanied her, accompanied her, only that she awoke the next morning lying on her front lawn. The drinking bout was spurred by a disagreement with her boyfriend. She claimed Miss Kelly stayed overnight at her home armed with a gun because Mark Byers, <laughs> quote, was always bothering us. Hutchison said she had became a methamphetamine addict while put working in a strip club prior to going prison around 1995. And 2004, she said she had recently gotten off meth. The timeline on harassment by Byers in May 1993 seemed to make little sense as her role in the case wasn't public knowledge then. In 2004, she said, we kept it quiet until Ron Lax's, he was a defense investigator who injected himself into the case, until uh, Ron Lax's big mouth, and he opened up that whole can of worms, you know, and everyone found out they talked to, talked to Aaron, then they found out about me and all that deal. She said Byers wanted to talk with Aaron, quote, by himself with him to McDonald's, unquote. She refused. She claimed Byers started buying Aaron gifts and bought a Christmas tree to their house, brought a Christmas tree to their house. She would see someone, quote, someone, quote, a really tall, big person, unquote, hanging around her back porch, quote, and I just knew it was Mark. I just had a feeling it was Mark. At the time she was telling this story, she and her son were on board with Mark Byers being the alternative suspect. 
<clears throat> and for those who don't know, Mark Byers is remarkably large, very tall. Excuse me. She said, <coughs> I might have to quit in a minute if this doesn't, if I don't get through here soon. She said, Miss Kelly was familiar with Michael through Michael's friendship with Aaron. Vicki appeared for a Baldwin 30, Rule 37 hearing on August 14, 2009, and answered a few questions. Then the court, prosecutors, and her attorney conferred on whether contradicting her testimony from 1994 would be perjury. Finally determining that she would be open to prosecution, there was no offer of immunity, and there the testimony stopped. While the Hutchinsons provided a crucial link to the solution of the case through their friendship with Miss Kelly, Vicki's investigation yielded little of worth. Eccles was an acknowledged witch, so she would have provided proof only of what was already known if she had testified. He made no self-incriminating statements to her. As for Aaron, childish fantasies aside, he provided a seemingly plausible link between the killers and their victims. Whether there was a prearranged meeting between the killers and their victims remains an open question. And that's it. Excuse the coughing toward the end. I was hoping that wouldn't come up. And that's it for today. Thank you.